Welcome to Our Thing, a show about crime and criminals. I've always thought that you can learn a lot about a society by learning about its criminal class. And I've always been drawn to stories about men and women who live outside the bounds of the law. I hope that you will find these true, or at least allegedly true, tales as engaging as I do. For the first season, I'm going to concentrate on the first generation of what academics call traditional organized crime, what the rest of us call the mob. We're going to follow the lives of men and women, born around the turn of the 20th century, who clawed their way out of dangerous slums to create an organization that dominated America for two generations. It's a story of rich and poor, of xenophobia and multicultural cooperation, of innovation and violence. In short, it's the story of America. Enjoy. On any given morning in the early 1970s, you could find Meyer Lansky browsing through the books at the Miami Beach Public Library. He was a common, welcome sight at the library, and staff remembered him as pleasant and mild-mannered. The old man seldom picked fiction, preferring histories and biographies, but he was increasingly picking dense works of philosophy. He had always been an avid reader. And now in his early 70s, Meyer Lansky had the spare time to indulge in his hobbies. From the library, Meyer would take a short walk to Wolfie's Kosher Deli on the corner of Collins and 21st Street to meet up with his buddies, lifelong friends who had followed him to Florida. Wolfie's was chosen because of its proximity to the library, along with its delicious danishes and buckets of complimentary kosher pickles. Meyer's crew of guys, Jaime Lazar, Yiddy Bloom, his brother Jake, were all like him, polite, neatly dressed Jewish grandpas. Often they would welcome one or two older Italian gentlemen, also old friends, to join them. All of their accents told a story, hints of old country origins, urban slum upbringings, and later lives of profound success. As they talked idly and reminisced about their pasts, an outside observer would be forgiven for thinking that these men, like so many other Miami retirees, had made their money through legitimate, mundane means. In truth, all these men were killers, veterans of brutal gang violence as teenagers and perpetrators and victims of even worse as men. However, more than just simple thugs, they had the wisdom, cunning, intelligence, and empathy to move beyond the short-term thinking tribal xenophobia, and reflexive violence of the underworld, and build something permanent, lasting, and strong. Meyer Lansky had always been a first among these men, a thinker, organizer, and leader. He truly defined 20th century America. However, like so many quintessential Americans, his story started thousands of miles away. Meyer was born, Meyer Soljelansky, to a Jewish family in the city of Grodno, in what is now Belarus, at the very dawn of the 20th century. It was here where Meyer Lansky gained the love of learning and a fierce pride in his Jewish identity. It was also where he learned about the necessity of violence and the benefits of using violence skillfully. Over the last few hundred years, Grodno suffered from the instability that characterized the Eastern European steppe. And over the years, it was constantly shifting between various German, Polish, and Russian leaders. When Meyer was born, Grodno was under the control of Russian Tsar Nicholas II. However, 
Like Meyer's family, most of the people of Grodno were Jewish, and Yiddish was the language of public life there. In the late 19th century, 70% of the 40,000 residents of Grodno were Jewish, and most of the local factories and businesses were Jewish-owned. There were more than 40 synagogues, Jewish poorhouses, Jewish orphanages and hospitals, and a Jewish theater. Meyer seems to have generally happy memories of his upbringing in the bustling little city. His family were middle-class merchants and lived in a townhouse above their shop. He lived there until he was around 10, with his younger brother Jacob, his father and mother, Max and Yeda, and his paternal grandparents, Benjamin and Basha Soljolansky. Meyer especially looked up to his grandfather, Benjamin. Benjamin was a successful businessman, a committed Zionist, and a prominent member of the local Jewish community. Grodno was a center of Jewish learning, and sharp Jewish boys from across the region traveled to Grodno to learn Hebrew and Jewish philosophy at the feet of renowned rabbis. Meyer excelled at these studies, foreshadowing a deep intelligence and a lifelong love of learning that would shape his criminal career. However, despite these happy memories, life was tough then for Jews in Eastern Europe. The Holocaust was a half century away, but the stage was already set. In the Russian Empire, Jews were officially oppressed. In the late 19th century, the Tsar passed laws prohibiting Jews from buying rural lands, attending university, or even having non-Jewish names. Even worse, the Tsarist government condoned vicious anti-Semitic mob violence as a form of patronage and social control. The Tsarist government and aristocracy were losing control of the masses of starving Russian peasants. In exchange for political loyalty, Russian peasants were allowed to plunder Jewish communities with impunity. These attacks, or pogroms, were extremely brutal and a constant specter for the Jews of Eastern Europe. Whole communities were exterminated. When Meyer was four years old, the nearby Jewish community of Bialystok was destroyed by Russian mobs. Shell-shocked survivors limped into his hometown of Grodno, telling horrific stories of burning, rape, and murder. One of Meyer's uncles was dismembered by raging Cossacks. Meyer was well aware of this danger and decades later remarked, the worst time was always at Easter and the Passover. Jewish areas in Russia were typically small, scattered, and surrounded by hostile Gentiles. This combined with the Russian government's official support for anti-Semitic mobs meant that most Jewish communities were unable to meaningfully resist the anti-Semitism. Meyer's people in Grodno were different. Starting by at least the late 19th century, the Jews of Grodno organized a self-defense militia, hiding rifles in their homes and practicing shooting in the woods. They protected their community and got justice, hunting Russian anti-Semites like the anti-Semites hunted the Jews. Even the Russian police, who aided and abetted the anti-Semitic mobs, weren't safe. After nearby Bialystok was destroyed, the local Russian police commander made the mistake of showing his face in Grodno around the Jewish high holidays. Within a few hours of arriving, he was shot dead by a gunman, probably associated with the self-defense militia. Two years later, the next police chief visited Grodno with beefed-up security and was also attacked, barely escaping with his life. Witnessing all this taught Meyer lessons he internalized throughout his life. Life was hard, especially for his people. 
He was surrounded by enemies who were capable of almost any barbarity. However, he also learned that his enemies bled. If you made them bleed enough, eventually they'd leave you in peace. Despite the relative safety of Grodno, Meyer's family, like millions of other Jews, saw the writing on the wall and made plans to leave. Meyer's grandfather believed the family should move to Palestine. Palestine was still under Ottoman control, but since at least the mid-19th century, sizable populations of European Jews had moved there to fulfill biblical prophecies and escape the pogroms. In Palestine, they created agricultural communes where they tilled the land and, at least until the 1920s, largely got along with their Arab neighbors. With Arab-Jewish conflict not yet a major issue, many European Jews saw Israel and Palestine as a biblically ordained, peaceful way to build a better world for their people. By 1902, there were 2,000 emigres from Meyer's hometown of Grodno, living in a self-contained suburb of Jerusalem, farming, running small shops, and living in righteous, dignified poverty. However, Palestine wasn't the only destination for the masses of European Jews fleeing persecution. By the late 19th century, the booming industrial cities of the United States were eager for workers and were happy to accept Eastern European Jews, along with multitudes of other groups, and provide them with jobs and sometimes the opportunity for genuine success. Meyer's grandfather was willing to exist as a hard-scrabble desert farmer in order to fulfill biblical prophecy and help build a nation for his people. Meyer's father, on the other hand, was less convinced that Levant was anything more than a ticket to agrarian poverty. According to Meyer, his father and grandfather argued extensively about where to move. Meyer's grandfather warned that there would be new ghettos in America and more discrimination from different Christians. However, Meyer's father's mind was made up, and in 1909, he left his family for New York, sending money home and promising to send for them when he became established. Meyer's grandfather, on the other hand, moved to Palestine a year later, happily dying in Jerusalem nearly immediately after arriving. By 1911, Meyer's father made enough money to send for the rest of the family. However, if certain late-night family discussions had gone differently, it is possible that instead of coming of age in the slums of New York, Meyer Soljolansky would have been raised as a Jerusalem farm boy, taken part in the Zionist movement, and helped build the state of Israel. Throughout his life, Meyer idolized his grandfather and had a difficult relationship with his father. Meyer was also a lifelong and passionate Zionist. One wonders if Meyer didn't wish his family had taken an early chance on Zionism. However, this was not to be. And instead, in 1911, when Meyer was 10, he set out with his mother and younger brother on the arduous journey to New York City. The trip was hard, and Meyer's mother was scammed out of her travel money by a fellow Jew before they even left Russia. They had to spend some time in a Jewish poorhouse, separating from each other before they finally recouped their losses and were able to set sail. According to his later recollections, Meyer tried to be strong throughout the difficult journey, he was brutally seasick for most of the trip, but hid his symptoms to avoid looking weak. I felt ashamed, Meyer later remembered, for the people who lay in their bunks and were sick and didn't do anything about it. I didn't want anyone to see me in that condition. Instead, he would sneak up to the top deck and vomit in secret. On April 8, 1911, 
Meyer and his family arrived in New York. At Ellis Island, he was shuffled through various queues and convinced the board immigration officials that he was neither medically nor politically defective. Like so many immigrants passing through Ellis Island, the bureaucrat transcribing his personal information lacked the patience or intelligence to transcribe his name correctly. Thus, while he left Europe, Meyer Soljelansky, he would enter America reborn with a new name. Meyer Lansky had arrived in New York. The city had no idea what hit it. Meyer's father was waiting for the family in a small tenement in the Brownsville section of Brooklyn. Meyer's dad had found work as a garment presser and worked long hours to barely afford the cramped apartment. Brownsville was a working class or even poor neighborhood, but it was a step above the hideous cramped slums that many immigrants lived in in the poorer parts of Manhattan. There were still farms, forests, and open fields in Brownsville, and Meyer's family was able to buy fresh milk and produce from local farmers. More importantly, it was a solidly Jewish enclave. In Brownsville, Yiddish was widely spoken, Shabbat was universally recognized, and Jews were safe from the anti-Semitic gangs of Irish and Italian thugs that roamed other parts of the city. Within three weeks of arriving in America, Meyer was attending Public School 84 in Brooklyn. There was no ESL language support for immigrant students, but despite this, Meyer quickly learned English and excelled at his studies. I loved school, he later remembered, and this love of learning, especially an unusual talent for math, would define Meyer's life. It was also in Brownsville where Meyer developed his political beliefs. Brownsville, along with the other working class Jewish neighborhoods in New York, were hotbeds of labor union, socialist, and communist activism. Despite becoming very rich as an adult, Meyer remained a very liberal Democrat until the day he died. In the 1960s, Meyer told a journalist, if you were born into poverty as I was, you'd be a liberal Democrat too. The family was mired in poverty. And though Meyer's parents had three more daughters in Brooklyn, two of the little girls died in infancy. The family often had little to eat. Meyer's father was honest and hardworking but never seemed to make enough money. After three years of living in Brooklyn, the family was forced to leave and move to a Jewish section of the Lower East Side of Manhattan along Grand Street. The move from suburban Brooklyn to the slums of Manhattan was undeniably a step down, and the apartment they moved into was even smaller and more cramped than the one they had left. Meyer remembered it as hot in the summer, cold in the winter. While most Jews living along Grand Street were honest, hardworking immigrants, Grand Street was also the center of Jewish street crime, and loosely organized gangs of Jewish wise guys openly operated on Grand, pimping Jewish women, selling drugs, and most importantly, gambling. Despite the chaos of his new slum surroundings, Meyer still took his education very seriously. He immediately joined the library when he moved to Manhattan and saw this as a sort of refuge from his cramped home and dangerous neighborhood. The local library had American classics in both Yiddish and English and gave Meyer access to a shaded reading terrace to study. I loved history, biographies, sports, and mechanical magazines and books, remembered Meyer. Also, the natural resources. Meyer's intelligence would directly lead to his criminal success 
But one has to wonder what Meyer would have done with his intellect if he was raised in a slightly more hospitable environment. In any case, the streets of the Lower East Side gave Meyer at least as much of an education as the libraries did. Meyer saw hardworking, law-abiding people like his mother and father toiling day and night and having nothing to show for it. He also saw the local street guys making money and living comfortably. Meyer hated being poor. He hated that two of his siblings died from poverty and he did not want to live that way anymore. Vitally, Meyer also recognized that the street guys and hustlers making money on Grand were no smarter than he was. With a little ingenuity, he could beat them at their game. Meyer had an unusual gift for numbers, so he naturally turned first and foremost to gambling, a career path that would define his entire life. However, life in Grodno and New York had also given him keen street smarts, so he quickly set out to find ways to eliminate risk by any means necessary. The most common form of gambling in the slums of New York were corner crap games. The wise guys running these games on Grand Street would usually pay tribute to local Jewish gang leaders, who in turn would pay off the Irish cops. The low-level corner boys actually running the games operated on tight margins, and Meyer quickly realized they often cheated, using shills and shaved dice. The scheme went like this. If onlookers and passerby weren't betting, an apparent stranger would step out of the crowd and place bets he would never lose. What the crapshooters knew, and what Meyer came to know as he became familiar with the neighborhood hustlers, was that this stranger was no stranger at all, but in fact a member of the gang. A shill who was gambling with the bank's money and was being allowed to use specially shaved dice to pile up winnings in order to draw the real suckers and their money into the game. Once these real suckers started putting their money in the pot, a new set of shaved dice came out that ensured the house always won. One pretentious Sabbath night, young Meyer joined a group of guys huddling around a corner crap game in his neighborhood. However, he was not here to gamble, strictly speaking. Instead, Meyer had a play, for he had identified the inside guy, the shill who was about to make the unlosable bet. Meyer Lansky waited until the last possible moment before the banker threw the dice. In a flash, before anyone could react, Meyer put his own nickel down on the shill's bet. I saw the banker give me a black look, he later recalled. But the crapshooter couldn't refuse Meyer's bet without arousing the suspicions of the crowd. Meyer instantly quadrupled his money at zero risk and quickly disappeared into the night. The episode was formative and taught young Meyer an important lesson. There's no such thing as a lucky gambler, he liked to say. They're just the winners and the losers. The winners are those who control the game. These are words he lived by as he rose through the New York underworld and eventually became a driving force behind the creation of Las Vegas. Not surprisingly, Grand Street and the Lower East Side more generally were very violent. Rival Jewish gangs often fought each other over turf, but the worst violence came from other groups. The Lower East Side in the early 20th century was ghetto in every sense of the word. Much more crowded and impoverished than Brownsville, the desperately poor Jews lived in close and unhappy proximity to other desperately poor ethnic enclaves. The Jews, Meyer later remembered, were locked between the Irish and the Italians. Jewish gangsters might have ran Grand Street, but the Irish and the Italians dominated southern Manhattan more generally. 
Italians were already importing the organizational practices and traditions from the old country that would form the basis of 20th century American organized crime. These Italian criminals extorted and robbed their own people, were also more than happy to target Jews down the street, were generally less well organized, spoke a different language, had some vague complicity in the death of Christ. Worse than the Italians were the Irish. The Irish had deeper roots in New York, and by the 1900s attained some level of social privilege not afforded to their Italian and Jewish neighbors. Because the New York police were primarily made up of working-class Irish men, Irish gangsters and racketeers could rely on police protection when competing with Italian and Jewish gangs, and enjoyed complicity when terrorizing Italian and Jewish civilians. The Irish boys would stop Jews in the street, Lansky later remembered, They'd strip them to see if they'd really been circumcised. They would spit on the Jews and pull their beards. Whenever there was a fight between the Irish and the Italians, or an incident involving Irish with Jews, Lansky later recalled to Israeli journalist Yuri Dan, the cops would always take the side of the Irish. Despite his bookishness, Meyer was a tough kid and developed a reputation for never backing down from a fight. He was from Grodno, and he did not leave the pogroms of Russia to be pushed around by a different group of anti-Semitic goys in New York. I never got on my knees for any Christian, he proudly told the Israeli historian Robert Rockaway in the 1970s. By the time he was 16 or so, he joined up with other like-minded Jewish boys around his age who shared his intellect and willingness to use violence. While they probably started out as a close-knit group of friends watching each other's back in a dangerous neighborhood. They quickly got into the mix, pimping women, providing muscle for labor unions, and setting up gambling spots. The boys who made up Meyer's street crew, Joseph Doc Stacker, Jake Lansky, Benny Bugsy Siegel, would grow to dominate American organized crime later in the 20th century. However, despite Meyer's fierce Jewish pride and the xenophobic nature of the Lower East Side, the most important friend Meyer would make as a teenager was not Jewish, but Italian. One night, a teenage Meyer was walking down Hester Street alone through the heart of the Lower East Side when he was surrounded by a gang of Italian boys. These Italian kids made their living protecting local Jewish boys. Their leader, a Sicilian teenager, didn't have anything personally against Jews, but found that Jewish boys were less likely than Italians or Irish to fight back. For 10 cents a week, he offered his Jewish neighbors genuine protection from the more ruthless Irish and Italian gangs roaming the streets. However, as always, if the Jews didn't pay up, the Sicilian and his gang would rob them. When the Sicilian and his crew saw the five foot four thin mire, they must have thought he was an easy target. However, Meyer would rather take a beatdown than pay tribute to a bunch of Christian thugs. After being rudely asked for his money, he looked the Sicilian straight in the eye and simply told him, go fuck yourself. It's unclear what happened immediately after this. Some stories have the two fighting, some tell the true trading insults. What is sure, though, is that little Meyer's bravery earned the respect of the Sicilian. Later on, the Sicilian would remember... We both had an instant understanding. It was something that never left us. The two would become lifelong friends, merging their gangs into a polyglot Jewish and Italian organization. 
first to fight the more powerful Irish groups and later to dominate rackets in Manhattan and beyond. The Sicilian's name was Salvatore Luciana, but he would become known on the street as Charles Lucky Luciano. The partnership between Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky would be endlessly fruitful for both of them and allow these two struggling street kids to become kings of organized crime. That's it for episode one. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time on Our Thing, we're going to look deeper into Lucky and Meyer's friendship and the budding criminal organization the two created. Until next time.